It's been quite the show today as we celebrate the life and legacy, the work and witness of the man I regard as the greatest American this country has ever produced, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who would be 95 years old where he's still living today. Uh, the first hour, a great conversation with Cornell West. Uh, in the second hour, an amazing dialogue with Michael Honey and Bill Fletcher Jr. We wrap today's tribute to Dr. King. We're preasing our conversation with USC Professor Hajar Yazdia about how right-wing movements have manipulated the legacy of Dr. King. Her book is called The Struggle for the People's King, and I believe her, her, her text helps us uh, to better understand the interplay between history, politics, and race. Here now our conversation with USC Professor Hajar Yazdia. How are you today? I'm good. It is so good to be here. It's good to see you. I'm glad you finally made it. Uh, and the timing couldn't be better, more propitious as we move toward the King holiday. That's right. Um, so uh, I'm glad it all worked out. L- let me start with a broad question. We've got an hour here, so we'll work this out. And I'm looking forward to, to the dialogue, as I said a moment ago. Um, I-, I am curious as to what it is that drew you, one can tell by your name, you are not an African-American, not the one has to be, to love King and to work, to write about King and to research King. But I'm always fascinated by what it is about him that pulls in other people. So as a scholar, uh, why King? Why, why, why Martin? I think it's such a good question. Mm -hmm. I mean, I talk in the preface about the fact that I am the daughter of Iranian political refugees, Mm -hmm. and I grew up in these predominantly white communities, Northern Virginia. And for me, there was always this question of, you know, where do I fit in within this kind of binary landscape of white and black, kind of being in between and having those constant questions of where are you really from? Mm -hmm. And so for me growing up, learning about the civil rights movement, watching these Hollywood films, always gave me this sense of catharsis because it felt like this was a moment where folks had stood up to the bad guys mm. and that they had won. But I think the piece that I say this in the preface, the piece that never sat right with me is that they had these happy endings. Mm. They always kind of made it seem like we solved the problem of racism and now everything was going to be great. You know, white folks and black folks were holding hands and it was just up from here. And that was not what I was seeing in my day-to-day life, the way that my parents were treated for Mm. having accents, you know, the way that I was invisibilized in school. And so for me, there was always this question, you know, if we think that racism is over, what do we lose? Mm. What are the conversations that we can't have? So it was in kind of learning these histories of black thought as I was growing up. It was James Baldwin, Audre Lorde. Mm. I mean, these were really the folks that drew me in and made me realize I was not outside the system of race. Right. right. I was part of it. And if anything, I was actually situated right within white supremacy where upward mobility looked like positioning myself around white people, you know, making them like me. So I think that was for me really the hook where the civil rights movement always fascinated me. And then the fact that King became the face of the movement. Mm. That's really where I wanted to dig in and find out, for one thing, why is he the symbol that's so prolific? Mm-hmm. But then also, why has he been so whitewashed and sanitized? Mm. Mm. Now you sound like my friend Cornel West. <laughs> that's uh, right, the Santa classification. You, you got, oh, you got, look at this. I love this. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly, that's that's his line. Uh, let, me just, let me just ask, by the way, Dr. West is on this program uh, uh, on Monday. Oh. So on the King holiday, he leads, the, he leads us off Monday at, uh, in our very first hour. Dr. West will be our guest, and so I look forward to, to that dialogue. Um, that said, and we'll get back to West and some of his formulations perhaps later in this in this conversation, but I, but I am curious, again, as to how, and I, I love the way you answered the question and give us gave us a sense of your backstory, mentioning the names of Audre Lorde and James Baldwin and others, and obviously you're a scholar, um, but, but give me a better sense of how the black freedom struggle around the globe for cultures everywhere informs, inspires, 
amplifies, educates. You take my point. It, it's just fascinating for me to see how other cultures are impacted and empowered by the black freedom struggle at which King sits in the center. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it always goes back to this crux of the people's histories mm-hmm. and the fact that they get written out and power is always distorting them because the last thing power wants is for the people to come together and rise up. Mm-hmm. And so the civil rights movement, the black freedom struggle is a story of folks that came together with such few resources, no power in society, no status, and based on their own kind of commitment, right, to the longer vision, the idea that maybe we're not going to see change tomorrow, Mm -hmm. but that it's somewhere in the future and that we're going to keep fighting for it. I think that's really what inspires all across the globe because it speaks to all kinds of people that are Mm -hmm. rising up from below. And I think the other piece is that it's a story of collective liberation. So it's this idea of the inescapable network of mutuality, right? The Mm -hmm. fact that we're all interconnected. And so there's no such thing as, you know, just one group being in a struggle by themselves. Like all of us will be liberated together if mm-hmm. we can pull these threads apart. I love it. Just getting started in this hour with uh, Hajar Yazdia, professor at USC, sociology professor, um, uh, talking about her work and witness uh, as it relates to King and uh, her book uh, about the ways in which uh, the, the political right uh, have bastardized and demonized and pretzelized, twisted like a pretzel. Um, his work and his witness should be a fascinating hour. I've been looking forward to this. I'm glad you tuned in right now to Tavis Smiley. You're listening to Tavis Smiley, Tavis Smiley, ranked number 45 on the heavy hundred list of the 100 most important radio talk show hosts in America. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. More of Hajar Yazdia coming your way right now, professor at USC uh, in the sociology department, uh, and we are talking to her about her book. Uh, that takes a takes a deep dive. It's called The Struggle for the People's King. The Struggle for the People's King. And we're talking about the ways in which uh, our friends on the right have hijacked uh, his work, his witness, his life, his legacy, um, the meaning of his words. Uh, I have my favorites. I've got you know, I've got a top five uh, of king of king phrases and words that they love to to take and just again twist like a pretzel. Uh, perhaps we'll get into some of that uh, in this hour. We were talking to uh, Professor Yazdi a moment ago about the black freedom struggle and the ways in which um, she is of Iranian descent, the way that so many cultures around the globe um, just love Dr. King and regard him and revere him in ways that even he's not uh, treated and respected, I think, in this country. And that's fascinating for me. So let me let me just ask right quick, what, what do you make of the fact that around the world, movements for freedom, and I make the point that movements are rare, uh, your friend, my friend, Corner West, were discussing this the other day. You start with a moment. That moment builds momentum. And if you're lucky, that momentum turns into a movement. Moment, momentum, and movement. But movements are very, very rare. But there are movements all around the world uh, at which King sits at the center because he inspires them to do what they need to do. What do you make of his global impact in this in this world house, as he might put it? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things I always want to drive home is that it's not just King, right? Mm -hmm. It is actually the whole infrastructure of the civil rights movement Mm -hmm. and the way that their slow relational organizing on the ground is a model Mm -hmm. for all kinds of movements that, again, are trying to rise up without any resources, without any power. And it's a way to show that 
movements take time. Mm-hmm. I tell my students this all the time. I teach classes on social movements. I tell them movement organizing is actually so boring. Mm-hmm. It is just, you know, there's the saying that freedom is an endless meeting. Mm-hmm. And it's so true, right? But I think there's this perception, especially among young folks that are coming up, that the civil rights movement kind of plopped down, showed up in the streets, and made these huge gains, and that it could never be replicated. And I think folks around the globe, because they have studied those tactics, they have actually studied what the movement organizers did, it's much easier for them to pick up those tools and remake them for all Mm -hmm. sorts of different contexts. It's a great line. Freedom is an endless meeting. Freedom is an endless meeting. Another great line. We're just getting started. She's dropping bars already. Uh, I guess I say it's going to be a great hour. Let me let me let me uh, go straight into your into your book, um, the struggle for the people's king. I'm always fascinated by the backstory, which is to say why and how uh, scholars decide to do the research they do and to write the text that they write. So you told us earlier about how and why King impacted you in your life uh, as an Iranian, but give me give me give me a, a deeper sense of, of why the text. Yeah, this particular project comes from graduate school. So I'm at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. This is the kind of Obama era, the 2010s. -hmm. And I'm seeing all of these reactionary politics coming out. The Tea Party is rising up. There's this language of reverse racism that's everywhere in political discourse because folks are saying that Obama hates white people. And for me, it's this question of how is it that in all of these political invocations, they are using King's words. They are saying that Dr. King would be opposed to these special rights that go to black Americans and minorities. They say he would be opposed to voting rights. And this question for me is like, how do we get to this point where this can be in a mainstream stage and be taken seriously? Dr. King's words flipped on their head and used against the very causes that he fought for. Mm -hmm. Um, So you start researching. Yes. Tell me, tell me the story. Yeah. So, you know, the project starts with really thinking about that Abigail Fisher case. And if mm. your listeners don't remember, this is the mediocre white girl who didn't get into University of Texas at Austin. Mm. And she tries to take affirmative action to the Supreme Court. And ultimately, she's not successful. But now we've seen, you know, that really starts off this trajectory of trying to repeal and using the words of King to do it. And so that's the case that gets me looking at legal cases specifically and thinking about this movement toward colorblind constitutionalism, Mm -hmm. which is the quote unquote race neutrality in law that folks are fighting for. This is folks on the right. And as I'm looking at that story, that's when I realized that this is a long phenomenon. This does not begin in the Obama era. Mm -hmm. And I did not expect in the book to have to go and do my research all the way back to 1980. But that's what ended up happening. Mm -hmm. Because I realized that so many of these false uses, the distortions of history were rooted in the making of the King holiday. Mm -hmm. And that is the 15 year battle from 68 to 83, when Reagan finally signs this law, begrudgingly, Mm -hmm. right? He does not want to sign it. And he hates He hates King. He hates civil rights. He has fought against it. And it's a moment where the language he uses to represent King in that pivotal moment becomes the basis of so many of these co-optations. Not long ago, we had a powerful hour on this program with Michael Eric Dyson, um, professor uh, now at Vanderbilt, uh, talking about the, the he was here the day of the 60th anniversary of Reagan signing that bill into into law. Uh, and um, I mean, the third anniversary, rather, of Reagan signing that bill in the law. And we talked about the fact that Reagan, to your point, did so begrudgingly, uh, didn't really want to do it. But more than that, to your point about Reagan not even being a fan of King and not liking King, I reminded the audience that day, as I remind, remind the audience once again, that Reagan announces, kicks off his campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi. He does that 
where they murdered Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney. That's where he announces. Now, this guy had been the two-term governor of California, but he goes all the way to Mississippi. Wow. <laughs> uh, to Philadelphia. I mean, some little small town. This is not, he's not even the state capital. It's not Jackson. He goes to Philadelphia to announce his campaign. Why? Because that is where they murdered Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney. And it was clearly a shout out to states' rights. That's why he was there. But you, I mean, but every time I think about this, my, my skin crawls because I, mean, I was much younger then, of course. But to just think that a guy could choose a place like Philadelphia, a Republican, to announce his run for the presidency and the fact that he got away with that, and got elected and then got reelected and is now an icon of conservatives in this country. But that's I mean, that's a bold and brazen statement, is it not? It is. And it also has all these eerie <laughs> echoes. Right. Yeah. I mean, we talk about history repeating itself. Mm. It sounds just like the Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. And I think what's you know scary is you go back and folks were really scared about Reagan becoming president. Mm-hmm. And Coretta Scott King has this quote where she says she's afraid if Reagan wins the presidency, we're going to see a rise of the KKK and start doing this work all over again. Mm-hmm. And the very next day he wins. Mm-hmm. And you think about everything that happened during the Reagan era, the rollback of civil rights, the increasing wealth gap. There's so much that explains our inequality today that began in that Reagan era. So, you know, for sure, I think the whitewashing of Reagan's own legacy is something we should think about because he strategically ties himself to King so that he can ward off these claims of racism and Mm -hmm. say, I signed the King holiday and I'm using his words. I'm just carrying on this legacy that behind closed doors, Reagan says is a strategy. Take me back to Abigail Fisher. You you teed this up. I want to I want to know more. Take us back to that moment. I remember that well. I was in the media talking about it when it happened. But take it back to that moment and remind us specifically of the ways in which they use King's words, twisted his words to make the case against affirmative action, which we now know has been gutted. It is the same quote that everybody uses, which is to be judged by... the color of your skin, not the content of your character. And you know what is sad is that in so many of these invocations actually flip it Mm -hmm. and they'll say, you know, the color of your skin and not the content of your character. Mm -hmm. Or sorry, you know, the reverse. But I think what's tough is that it becomes a way for all sorts of groups. Mm-hmm. So this includes anti-abortion groups, family values activists who are fighting against LGBTQ rights, gun rights activists. They all end up picking up these certain phrases, mm-hmm. like you said, the top five that are used mm-hmm. all the time, and using them to represent King as this guy who really just cared about colorblindness. You know, we weren't going to talk about race because racism was over. His dream was just for us to be kumbaya. And he was a really nice guy. He didn't disrupt anything. And so you think about how he gets invoked to shut down dissent and shut down the challenges against systemic racism. Mm. So in that Fisher moment, this is one of these early moments where he's being used against affirmative action, even though during the battles for the King holiday, one of the Republicans who's fighting against the holiday says that King was himself a racist because of his support of affirmative action. Mm -hmm. Um, I remind this audience often um, that uh, in all of King's writings, in all of his speeches, in all of his works, you will not find him ever uttering the phrase colorblindness. Mm-hmm. It is not a word or a phrase that he ever used. He did not believe in colorblindness. And so you will not find that word, that phrase, that formulation anywhere in his work and witness. You don't have to take my word for it. Go ask you know, David Garrow. Go ask Taylor Branch. Go ask Claiborne Carson. Go ask Lewis Baldwin. Any number of King scholars will tell you you will not find that phrase 
ever coming out of King's mouth about colorblindness. That is not what Dr. King believed, but that, again, is the argument that they advanced. I, I laugh um, when I think about the fact that so many Americans, certainly our conservative friends, act like King only gave one speech in his whole life. Mm-hmm. And then they act like that speech only had one line in it. And that's the one line they know. Yes. And then they take that one line, to your point, to flip it, to make their argument that King would be opposed to corrective programs like affirmative action because he wanted people judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. It just shows, again, they have no interest in really digging deep into King's work, into his corpus. Uh, that is not what he meant, but it's fascinating how they do that. Let me ask you how then, in your work, you see a through line from Abigail Fisher until now with people, uh, again, misappropriating King's words. Yeah. I mean, the story in the book actually goes back to the 80s. Mm-hmm. And so I actually do want to kind of take that longer view because I think it's important to show that it's an accumulation of these conservative strategies. Mm-hmm. I mean, through the Reagan presidency, it really is this fight for states' rights and rolling back civil rights. But during the Clinton presidency, the reaction to Clinton being a quote-unquote liberal mm-hmm. is all of this kind of Newt Gingrich contract with America business where it becomes a fight against you know LGBTQ rights. That's a really big one in the 90s because gay rights movement is calling themselves the new civil rights movement. And so they're not just countering it. They're not just saying, you know, gay is not the same thing as black. They're also now claiming that they are the new victims. Mm. So they're saying that Christians are under threat. They are the new minorities. They are the new black people. And they are using King's words to do it. So that's how you end up in this kind of position of white victimhood that undergirds all of the culture. So you get a Fisher moment where white folks actually buy that, yeah, maybe they are the new minorities. Maybe they are under threat. Mm -hmm. And what I say in the book is that when you actually look at that trajectory, it predicts the Trump presidency. Mm. It predicts January 6th. It is no surprise that something like great replacement theory came about, this idea that white people are under existential threat, because that perception of threat has been building since the initial gains of the civil rights movement. Mm. We know famously that Obama put a bust to Dr. King in the Oval Office. Uh, and I said many times, and you know, I, no, no secret here, people know that I had some commentary during the Obama era. I voted for him twice, like everybody else, but there were times uh, that I said publicly, uh, and I stand by this, that I wondered uh, what King was whispering to him at night uh, when he was alone working late in the Oval Office. What was that bus whispering to you? Because if you grade King, uh, if you grade Obama or any other politician, and Dr. West and I, trust me, we'll get into this on Monday. How do I know? Because the conversation's already been pre-recorded. I don't normally, <laughs> I don't normally tell people that. But Dr. West was just in this studio. We pre-recorded the conversation that you will hear Monday on the King holiday. And Dr. West and I get into this. I won't tell you how he responded to it, but I will tease you with what the question was. I asked Dr. King, Dr. Dr. West rather, too many doctors around here, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Yazdia, Dr. King, Dr. West. Um, but I, I asked him, if we were grading American politicians writ large on a Kingian scorecard, how would they rate? And the Kingian scorecard has to be what King referred to as the triple threat facing this democracy, racism, militarism, and poverty. Think about that for a second. If you were grading every president, every member of the Senate, every member of the House, your local leaders, if you were grading them on a Kingian scorecard that the greatest triple threat to this nation are those three things, racism, militarism, and poverty. We could add to that, of course, climate change and a number of other things now, but that was King's scorecard. If you were grading them on just what they've done on militarism, just what they've done on poverty Mm -hmm. and racism, how would they rate? That's how, when I go to the polls, I decide who I'm voting for. How do they stand up on King's scorecard? 
I raise that because we're in this moment now, obviously, of a, of a, of a political season. And you, we're talking about this through lines. So I want to ask about Biden and I want to ask about Trump. Put you on the spot. Okay. So connect Biden and King for me and tell me what you see. And then connect Biden and Trump and tell me what you see. Take take either in whatever order you want to you want to you want to respond. All right. Ask the hard questions, Tavis. I see. Uh, you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, for me, and I say this in the book, it isn't just the story of right wing co-optation. Mm-hmm. It's also about liberal dem- Democrats, right? There you go. The corporate establishment mm-hmm. also doing this work of co-opting and creating colorblindness, kind of sweeping the issues under the rug. And they play the same game. And we can talk about how it's to different degrees, to different consequences. But it does the same thing of making it feel like we can never tackle the root causes. And so you talk about this scorecard and I'm immediately thinking, like, I'm a really generous professor mm-hmm. and I you, would you, give you, the- you're on a curve. Yes. You're well, on a curve. They don't even need to, right? Because they're already doing so good in my class. Yeah. I would give them all Fs, mm. right, on this scorecard. Mm. Because there has been no real reckoning. And this is something that scholars like Victor Ray and Hakeem Jefferson have argued. It's the idea that we never fully confronted the past. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we put a couple laws in place and they were huge gains, mm-hmm. right? They kind of created the infrastructure for multicultural democracy. But we never actually understood why America was to blame and the fact that that racism was built in. It was baked into every system in society. Mm. So without the reckoning, all you have is folks coming into office with varying degrees of commitments to, you know, pursuing King's quote unquote colorblindness. Mm -hmm. And all they do is recreate the problem over and Mm. over and over again. Power just protects itself. And that is why she said earlier, and I'm still uh, marinating on this notion that freedom is an endless meeting. It ain't never over, right? Freedom is an endless meeting. Uh, how blessed are we to have Hajar Yazdia, professor of sociology at USC, as our guest in this hour. Her book is uh, The Struggle for the People's King. More with her when we come forward. You're listening, and I'm glad about it, to Tavis Smiley. Seeking the truth. The truth. Speaking the truth. This is the Tavis Smiley Show. More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned in to Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley and Hajar Yazdia, professor of sociology at USC. Her book is called The Struggle for the People's King. Uh, as we head toward the King holiday on um uh, on on Monday, uh, we are celebrating the life and legacy. Well, you know me. I'm celebrating King all the time in every conversation it seems to come up um, because I love him so. And I regard him, as this audience knows, as the greatest American this country has ever produced. That's my assessment. He is the greatest American we have ever produced. Um, and yet I have concerns uh, about the ways in which uh, the farther we get away from his time on Earth, uh, he is being uh, maltreated. His words are being bastardized and misused. He's being manipulated for people's uh, causes and ends and aims. I'm troubled by that, as is Professor Yazdia, and that's why she wrote the book, The Struggle for the People's King. Um, let, let me start uh, now by, by, by asking um, uh, why it is you think, and we were discussing this a bit during the break, why you think it is that we are so afraid to wrestle with the radical king? Yeah, the yeah. inconvenient king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think if you think about the way that power reproduces itself, I mean, power does not yield unless you make it. Mm -hmm. And so it has created the story that's top 
down. You know, like it's a story that gets handed down. It's institutionalized. It's protected by folks in power, including politicians and media. And that's the story that has to defang him. Because if we were to know the radical king, then he would become a kind of muse, right? Mm -hmm. And we would continue his unfinished work. And that's not to say we haven't. And actually something that I say a lot in the book is that it really has been black communities keeping his true Mm -hmm. legacy alive. But that is not the legacy that shows up in the media, right? And I think Mm -hmm. one of the problems is the media complicity story. I talk about how in this quest to quote unquote represent both sides, they have perpetuated these false histories. And if anything, those are the ones that are sensationalist. They get the front page. And so the resistance from below is just not getting the same due shrift. Mm-hmm. Um, let, me, let, me, let me ask you this. Um, we, when we talk about King and, and celebrate him, um, always seem to overlook um, a number of things, obviously. But one of those things, uh, as it occurs to me, is that King was never afraid. As a matter of fact, he's so essence was about putting love in the center of the public square. Um, I once gave a speech um, uh, where I asked that question. My theme was, whatever happened to the notion of love in the public square? There are a number of ways to get at that. There's King, there's Bobby Kennedy, there's Mahatma Gandhi, there's even Mandela. There's so many ways to get at this conversation about whatever happened to the notion of love in our public discourse, in the public square. And by love, I don't mean that syrupy thing. I mean uh, by love that everybody is worthy just because. Not because of your last name, not because of your pedigree, where you went to school, how many degrees you have, how much money you make, what neighborhood you live in, what kind of car you drive. No, none of that. The fact that everybody, each life is worthy and precious just because, full stop. That was King's essence, and that was his belief, as you well know. He put that in the center of the public square, uh, and nowadays that seems not to exist. You talk about love these days, you get laughed out of the room, even with that definition. That's important to me because if we could ever accept that definition, King's definition of love, that everybody's worthy just because, and beyond accepting it, if we could actualize that in our politics Uh, in our other uh, uh, work and witness in this country. That would mean that everybody would be treated a bit differently. If we're all worthy just because, that means that everybody deserves access to equal high-quality education. It means everybody has uh, access to to living in a good, decent, clean environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, You take my point. If we could ever actualize that. I, I raise that simply to ask why you think it is that in our celebration of him, we lose sight of the one thing that he put in the center of the public square. King said many times, as you well know, that love is the most powerful force in the world, the only thing capable of turning enemies into friends. And yet when we talk about him, um, we don't raise that issue. And those who want to take his words and twist them definitely don't want to do, they don't want, they don't want, they don't want anything to do with that part of King, that love notion, that love potion, if you will. What do you make of that? I love that question. And I think about that all the time. I actually wrote an op-ed. It came out yesterday. Mm -hmm. And it thinks about his take on peace Mm -hmm. and the fact that for him, peace was not about the absence of tension. Mm -hmm. It was about centering this radical love. And I think a lot of it is the fact that our society is built on racial capitalism, Mm. which does not just prevent us from seeing love within 
other people. It's also preventing us from loving ourselves.、Mm. And it's just easy to think about love as kind of ooey gooey, you know, just be nice to one another sentiment that you teach children, but ultimately isn't a real way to live your life.、Mm-hmm. I think a radical love that's actually based on common humanity and seeing the human dignity in every person. That requires a redistribution of resources.、Mm-hmm. It is not just about a feeling, and I think it's the part that requires a shift in power, a shift in resources. I mean, that's the part that people don't actually want to get on board with,、mm-hmm. because people do not want to give up things. And radical love does require giving things up. I want to ask you a, a quick question before I do that, though. Tell me more about the op-ed piece. I'm, I'm fascinated by it, particularly as it relates to King and peace in this moment. Yeah, I mean the or, piece, or the lack thereof. I should say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's really how it was solicited. Was、mm-hmm. thinking about how King actually felt about Israel and Palestine,、mm-hmm. and for me, I started the piece by saying, "Yes, we can look at these specific quotes." I mean, we've already seen Amy Schumer fighting. Bernice King had to fight back and say, "My dad wouldn't say that,"、mm-hmm. but that is not the argument we should be having because what King actually believed in was this anti-militarism, where violence would beget violence.、Mm-hmm. Violence would only create more strife, and it would be. A cycle that would never end, and so when you think about that speech he gave at the Riverside Church,、mm-hmm. this is a moment where he stands up, and that political courage that it took in that moment, where sixty-one percent of the public was for the Vietnam War, and、mm-hmm. so it was a deeply unpopular stance to even stand against it. And he did it anyway, even though it meant losing political allies like President Johnson. He lost fifty percent of black support after that.、Mm-hmm. He lost civil rights leaders, and you know that's you think about. You've written about the last、mm-hmm. year of his life. I mean, this is a moment when seventy-five percent of the public hate this guy. So you think about what it takes—the courage to stand for peace. And for me, it resonates so much with the way that we think about this moment, right?、Mm-hmm. We could talk about safety and protection and all this, but at the end of the day, it's really about a radical revolution of values that he、mm-hmm. talked about, right? It's about centering love. Yep,、yeah. uh, I'm glad you went there. You can't see my notes; you can read my handwriting anyway. But I just wrote down revolution of values. I love it. And here you come saying, "I want to talk about that when we come forward." What it, what that looks like? I, I just want to imagine that.、Um, somebody I had a guest on this program yesterday who dropped a powerful line. As you can tell, I, I get turned on. By things that just expand my thinking, his line yesterday was that we have to have we have to consider and have a conversation about expanding our moral imagination. That was his line yesterday. We are in a moment. We are in a frame where we have to expand. Stretch was the word he used. We have to stretch our moral imagination. I'm going to do that when we come forward with you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get、wait. I'm going to get you to stretch、uh, our moral imagination by considering what a revolution, a radical revolution of values. Kingian style would look like in this moment. Imagine that for me when we come forward. Her name is Ajah Yazdia, professor of sociology at USC, author of the book "The Struggle for the People's King," and I'm glad to have her right now on Tavis Smiley. Hope, agency, dignity. This is Tavis Smiley. Can you dig it? Come on! Truly believe. Helping to make you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley and、uh, Hajar Yazdia, professor at USC.、Uh, her book is called "The Struggle for the People's King." As we push our way toward the King holiday on Monday、uh, this year, it falls actually on his birthday, the fifteenth,、um, and also the day of the Iowa caucuses. That's a whole other conversation. I'm troubled by the fact that we got Iowa caucuses. 
for Republicans on the day that we celebrate King. I'm, I'm concerned because he, he his story is going to get pushed to the margins. All this conversation about the Iowa caucus is going to push King's day uh, and his legacy to the margin. But you're going to get a lot of it on this program. So we're giving you an hour today, giving you more on Monday. I'm going to give you as much King as I can give you uh, so that <laughs> Iowa caucus ain't all you get uh, on, on his actual birthday. I digress on that point for now. Um, I was saying a moment ago, uh, following you, you you were talking about resources and re- redistribution of resources that you went right to that radical revolution of values that I wanted to get to anyway. So imagine for me, as my guest said yesterday, uh, we have to stretch our moral imagination. So let's do that right now. We stretch our moral imagination and we try to uh, imagine a world, a nation, certainly, um, that is willing to wrestle with King's uh, edict that we need a radical revolution of values. What does that look like? Okay, I love this because it is not something sociologists get to do often Mm -hmm. to do this kind of future imagination, Mm -hmm. but it's something I think about a lot of my own work. And I'm always talking about how we have to extend our political imagination. Mm -hmm. And so to think about the moral and the political actually working in tandem is a really valuable way to think about how a radical revolution of values, one that in King's sense centers dignity, it centers equal humanity, is one that does require reparations. It is one that does actually repair the sort of core harms that lie at the center of society. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm doing that kind of projection into the future, it's one where we've actually taken seriously, for example, his Poor People's Campaign. It's one where people have come together across all sorts of boundaries, right, race and class, and they've thought about how they're actually standing in linked fate. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that for me has always been the ideal is that we stop thinking about it in terms of parties like the blues and the reds and the mm-hmm. Dems and the Republicans. And we start realizing that that is a project to keep us divided. It is the old game of divide and conquer and that we're all suffering. So were we to come together there could be revolution, not just of values, but of structures and mm. systems. Mm. And we may actually be able to build the world anew. Mm. When we come forward in our remaining moments, I want to ask you, given what you just said, how you um, would link in this moment in late modernity in this country, how you would link MLK and notions of restorative justice. How, how would you link MLK and notions of restorative justice? That's the question that we'll offer as our exit uh, uh, question to Professor Yazdia, who you're listening to on Tavis Smiley. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smart talk for curious people just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. 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 Um, about this notion of a revolution of values, a radical revolution of values, and what that would look like in this moment. Yeah. I mean, you know, you asked about this question of restorative justice Mm -hmm. and how it's linked to King and how he kind of guides us forward in this idea that, yes, so many harms have been committed, but is there some way for us to repair and come together? Mm -hmm. And for me, one of the greatest challenges of King's work is his conception of nonviolence, one that truly centers the radical love, that truly centers forgiveness and redemption. And I always say it's not even like it means you have to be happy and, you know, kind of peaceful all the time. It actually means you can experience immense anger. You can have the full range of human emotion when it comes to the things that have been done to you by your fellow Americans, your fellow humans. But it does mean that from that space of kind of 
eruption of anger and emotion,、mm-hmm. you find your way to the inner peace that allows you to love this person and love these people across boundaries, across all of the perceptions of threat that are created around us.、Mm-hmm. And so, restorative justice is built into this concept,、mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean allowing people to get away with things. And I think that's where we go wrong sometimes: is we think, well, if we focus on the past too much, you know, we're never going to move forward. You're just going to create a bunch of victims in society, and people are constantly going to be paying for their sins, even though they had nothing to do with this history of enslavement. That's not how I see it. I see reparations as freedom.、Mm-hmm. I see it as a way for us to acknowledge, to confront. And then to work together to move forward.、Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad you shared that、um, because as you were talking, I was thinking that I hope you're not going to ask me to surrender my agency to be outraged. <laughs> <laughs> I do not want to surrender、Never. my agency to be outraged when people take Martin's words and just abuse them. We should be outraged. Yeah, yeah. And I think the pushback is the piece that's. Been missing, and not to say that you know we haven't been tweeting. Oh, that's not what he means. I mean, we have to come together and organize around that. And I actually think the Reclaim King movement that comes、mm-hmm. out of Black Lives Matter has been doing this beautifully.、Mm-hmm. The King Center has been doing this beautifully. So folks have been doing this. It's much more about the rest of us、mm-hmm. amplifying it and then also pushing back. To your to your point,、um, what what does it mean for everyday people? As Sly Stone might say, everyday people. What does it mean for us? I love the phrase、um, to reclaim King. How do we in this season, in this election year, in this、uh, King holiday moment, how do we re- do our parts individually to reclaim King? Yeah, I mean, I think it is going to require a process of soul searching, both individually and collectively. Do we want to keep kind of recreating the same systems over and over again, playing into a two-party system that does not represent our interests, or do we want to extend and stretch our moral and political imaginations、mm-hmm. and try to imagine how we might actually start putting pressure on those systems? So that's one of the things I see is that this is an opportunity for us to think about those triple pillars, right? Your Dr. King card that you talked about. How are we going to take on the interconnected evils of systemic racism, of militarism, and capitalism ultimately?、Mm-hmm. Because when he talks about poverty,、mm-hmm. he's talking about this greed that emerges from capitalism. So I think these are the the core questions that should take us into this election year.、Um, I can't do any better than that.、Uh, those are the core questions that should take us into and through. Uh, this election year, which starts in earnest、uh, on Monday with the、uh, Iowa caucuses on the King holiday, so、uh, I think there's a, a great moment to link those two things together based on the questions that you've just raised for us that we need to be uh, uh, wrestling with throughout this year. Her name is Ajara Yazdia,、uh, professor of sociology at USC. Her book is called、uh, "The Struggle for the People's King." The struggle for the people's king.、Uh, I've delighted so much in having you in studio.、Uh, this conversation has been amazing for me and for the audience. I thank you for your time. Wish you nothing but the best the rest of this year. Thank you so much.